From Rivers Barden Architects, this is Spork in the Road, a podcast featuring conversations with creative individuals about their path, craft, and passions. In this episode, our resident architects Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden visit with Natalie Lynn, a violinist from Houston, Texas. And the concept was sort of to challenge the idea of the traditional symphony orchestra. You know, you've got one conductor in charge, and then you've got a bunch of musicians that are are, are very skilled, of course, that sort of um, report to or, you know, are under Mm -hmm. the conductor. And I wanted to kind of eliminate that role of the conductor. Can musicians actually have like artistic freedom to make decisions and collaborate. Natalie Lynn is a violinist and founder of Kinetic, a conductorless ensemble from Houston, Texas. Joe and Kevin sat down with Natalie to discuss her upbringing in music and how her ensemble is forging a new path for classical musicians. Here's Joe, followed by Natalie. Uh, I guess we'll just kick off with, uh, where are you from? So, I'm originally from Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, cool. I was born and raised there. And I came to the States in 2007. So, about 11 years now. Wow. I've been in the States. New Zealand's an awesome place. Everyone should go and visit. Um, It's (laughs) it's also a really small place, especially um, when you're doing music or um, Mm. something creative. So a lot of musicians leave to study or yeah, just to find their careers. So I left right after high school, um, came to University of Houston, and then I ended up um, transferring to a school in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland oh, Institute wow. of Music. So I was there for four years and then I came back uh, to Houston to start my doctorate at Rice. So that's sort of oh, uh, wow. what brought me back to Houston and I've been back for about five or six years now. Wow. Let's go back. How'd you get into playing the violin? What, what was your exposure to music in Auckland back in the day? Yeah. Um, so I've been playing music for as long as I remember, um, before I remember, actually. So oh, I started wow. when I was four years old. Um, my sister was, uh, she's two years older. She started when she was six. And when she started, I think I was like three and a half. And I really wanted to just do everything that she was doing Um, and I wasn't allowed until I turned four so when I turned four (laughs) my my mom was like okay you can yeah it was a big day yeah Yeah. Um, is that your one of your earliest memories is playing music or probably yeah yeah Yeah, I have like home videos um, of like performances that I I don't even remember um, which is crazy yeah Okay. Did you start with the violin? I started with the violin. Um, I started with this m- sort of pedagogic method called the Suzuki method. Yep, yep. Um, and it's really big and effective with young kids. Yes. So basically... Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yeah, twinkle, twinkle, little Mississippi star. Mississippi, stop, stop. Yeah, I, are you a Suzuki I kid also? Took, I, I was, I did. I did the Suzuki method for cello when I was a kid. Oh, cool, yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, I did a little bit of like teacher... Um, training when I was in Cleveland but the whole concept is like um, you learn music as if it's a language so if you imagine like a a kid like a baby the way that they learn how to speak is just by listening to their parents speak and so they so with Suzuki they really encourage your parents to actually learn um, the instrument as well so that when oh. they go home it's not just like a once a week thing but it's like a totally immersive thing like they go home and the, the mom or the dad like 
is there to help them learn you know this language so yeah that's why you see so many young young kids using it yeah doing suzuki yeah. Which which parent was it for you? Um, it was my mom. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Was she a musician? Um, yeah. She, well, she played piano. Uh-huh. Um, so when we were kids, she would play piano with us for some of our earlier performances. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she definitely took on like the Suzuki mom role. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Do, do you find uh, are there any techniques from that method that you still reference in your work today? Um, I do with my own students. I teach some private students, um, and yeah, I mean, part, part of the whole concept is also to really like nurture your students. So it's a very embracing kind of way of learning where the kids are like excited and, um, so, you know, as much as possible, I try to embrace that as well and not, not be too, you know, harsh on my kids. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long um, did, were you uh, working on your doctorate? Um, so I still am, sort of. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, they take yeah. a long time, yeah. Yeah, um, I started in 2013, um, so finished my coursework, um, and then I still have a dissertation to go to sort of wrap it up. Cool. Um, but yeah. Do you have uh, what what ideas do you have for your dissertation? Or are you kind of well underway in the? Um, yeah, I have a proposal submitted. Um, cool. But I've still got a long way to go. Um, I'm writing about uh, composer Benjamin Britten. We've played a lot of his music um, in my group. So yeah, and just t- talking about like different textures um, that happen in his music. So nice. That's the plan. Use yeah. a twentieth century. Composer yeah. from, from Br- uh, Britain? Britain, yeah, yeah. exactly. Cool. Yeah. What is it about his, his music that resonates with you? Why? He, he's written, um, like he's written a lot of vocal music that's really popular and um, I feel like has been written about a lot. Um, but he also has um, some amazing music for string instruments. So I play violin and I love it because it's really tactile if that makes sense like yeah. you can tell when he was writing it he really had like the performer in mind and like how it felt under the fingers wow and that sort of thing um he was a violist um and a pianist so wow. i really like the the way that mm, like when you play his music you can feel a lot of the motion or even just like seeing the music on the page you can see a sense of motion in the way that he wrote it like so specifically wow so even that's just really like cool printed uh not even in his script or anything or just, just yeah the just, notes. Wow. just the, the notes and then the the notation like um and like string in- instruments are so physical like right. um there's so much motion invo- involved it's mm-hmm. not like a wind instrument where a lot of it happens like in your mouth i guess yeah but like yeah, string instruments are just like you're moving your arms and like if you're standing, you're sort of like moving, you're moving a lot. So he's often just really specific about how he wants, you know, your bow to move or that sort of thing. I think wow. it's really cool.
What, uh, when, when did you start uh, Kinetic Ensemble? I started Kinetic, um, kind of kicked it off in my second year at Rice. Um, and the concept was sort of to like challenge the idea of the tradi- traditional symphony orchestra. Mm-hmm. So it's a very... Um, it's a very old tradition. Um, you know, you've got one conductor in charge that historically is very, um, if I can say, authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a bunch of musicians that are, are, are very skilled, of course, that sort of um, report to or, you know, are under mm-hmm. the conductor. And I wanted to sort of challenge that and see, like, okay, if we kind of eliminate the that role of a conductor how does it work um can musicians actually have like artistic control and uh artistic freedom to make decisions and collaborate so that was sort of the the idea and to test that um I did a couple of recitals as part of my degree at Rice. Mm -hmm. Um, That was in 2014 and 15, just to sort of like test the concept. Um, Got a bunch of my friends at music school together, you know, persuaded them with pizza and stuff like that (laughs) to to do this project. And um, yeah, it was, there were were challenges for sure, but um, it was um, really well received and, yeah, and I felt like there was something something there to explore. Um, there are other conductorless orchestras that exist in the world. Um, probably the most famous is Orpheus Chamber Orchestra in New York that mm-hmm. started maybe a, about 40 years ago. And I think when they started, it was like, you know, a, a totally new concept, like totally crazy um, to, <laughs> to even try that. Um, and yeah, there, there's a group in San Francisco, um, Boston, um, and I, you know, as the longer that I was in Houston, the more I loved the city. And you know, it's it's a huge city. There's so much going on. And then I was like, you know, there's not that much in terms of like innovative classical music going on. There's no conductorless orchestra. Why not take this outside of campus and see where this goes? Um, yeah. And that that's sort of yeah where it where it began. You mentioned there were um, some initial challenges uh, with maybe getting the group together. That first performance, what was mm-hmm. what was what was that? Um, yeah, like? well, um, yeah, the first sort of pilot projects that we did was very much just testing the model. Like um, we were exploring how to make this democratic with so many people so in kinetic what was what was that number real quick like um, the, the first couple of performances yeah, how many how many musicians yeah um so we had 18 musicians for the first concert and then now we sort of narrowed it down to 16 which is not not that much less um but uh you know traditionally with with smaller groups like you know if you see a string quartet perform there's no conductor there's only four people and you can you can sort of get as large as eight or nine, and that's normal without a conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, but then beyond that, it's pr- it's pretty unusual. So we were playing, um, yeah, with eighteen musicians, um, orchestral music, and uh, yet just figuring out like, okay, you, how are rehearsals um, going to be structured? Like, right. who's going to you know um, say what we're going to rehearse at what time? And so. Um, 
as we went along, we learned better how to be efficient with our time and still, you know, really productive. And at the same time, allowing every musician on stage to have a voice, um, which was really important for me to make sure that, like, it doesn't matter if you're up at the front or you're in the back stand, um, that you feel um, equally valued and, you know, your creative ideas are, you know, being voiced, basically. So if you can imagine, like, the first one was a little chaotic, right? Like, oh, sure. we didn't really know what we were doing. And yeah. at the time, because it was a school, it was like my degree recital. So I had, um, like, professors come in and sort of, uh, like, maybe a little bit sceptical. <laughs> like, uh, you know. Um, but we pulled it together, of course. And then in the end, it, yeah, yeah, it was great. And um, because of the success of that, we, we felt like we could you know, do better and do more projects and, um, you know, make it an actual ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if uh, the Suzuki method is, um, I mean, the way you talked about Suzuki method and the way you teach being very interpersonal and very Mm -hmm. connected to your students, do you think that's led to you following this approach of music? Do you think, do you think there's been a, a subtle history and exposure that has led you to this um yeah i haven't actually thought about it but probably yeah um one thing about suzuki that is really different to um traditional methods is that um they want it they want to make it uh communal the way Mm -hmm. that you play so instead of a four-year-old like like me when i started just playing by themselves um we would have group classes, group lessons, and you know because the Suzuki method is a set repertoire, everyone plays the same pieces. So you can just go into a group and play the same piece, like twenty like kids playing Twinkle together, and that sort of thing. And um, for for the kids, it's a huge motivator because it makes it fun, um, and it makes it like. Uh, like a yeah just a community activity um, or a social activity I should say Um, and I I think that's a very sort of inspiring thing for for students to to want to keep learning yeah Mm -hmm. so I guess so yeah because um, kinetics so much about collaboration as opposed to yeah working by yourself or playing by yourself Mm -hmm. so yeah maybe there's a link there
what's been the biggest learning lesson or the biggest dis- maybe the biggest discovery since starting Kinetic Ensemble uh, four seasons ago? Um, I, I think the biggest uh, lesson is that I didn't know how much work it was going to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a startup. It still is. I, th- I think it's still in, like, startup phase. Um, and in a way, I'm glad that I was so naive about it because yes. I thought, wow, I just want to play great music with my friends. Um, and, and that was sort of the motivation. Um, and just the more I got into it, um, the more I realized that actually I'm like running an organization and I've never taken a business class before um, and now it's a nonprofit and you know so a lot of things that I felt like I uh, not that I stumbled into it but I de- definitely like jumped in the deep end I don't take anything back because it's been amazing um, but it has been a, a lot of hard work um, for the most part though I, I do have to say that music schools generally don't set you up to do anything else but play music mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe that's not true for every music school but the focus is overwhelming, overwhelmingly to train you to, to be an amazing musician mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily to you know start up your own uh, teaching studio or start your own um, organization and, and that sort of thing. So I think, um, in a way, like um, starting starting Kinetic out of a rice project was um, like kind of unusual. Like that, uh, you know, like the the expectation for me as a doctoral student was to you know, first finish my dissertation, uh, or, or at least finish my coursework, pass my exams, and then start looking for academic jobs. And this right. was sort of a, a real curveball. Right, you're, you're supposed to go through school and then turn around and teach. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, I mean, it's, hey. It's the way yeah. it's done. Yeah, yeah, it's the roadmap, yeah. Not, not following the map. It's, it, it's like the, for arch, like architecture school, it's the same thing. It's like you go through architecture school. Everybody's taught to be a designer. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. You know, it's it's like the whole business side. Like, there's so much stuff that Joe and I have learned in the last two years that we never were exposed to in architecture school. And, you know, from your shoes, it's I'm sure it was something like, well, what's a nonprofit? How do I set that up? How do I yeah. pay taxes? Yeah, like how constantly I... Googling things. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like yes. the method. I don't know how anyone started a business before Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, where, where, who do I ask questions to? You know? And, uh... I, I tell people uh, for myself, like, yeah, I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work to start a business. And I understood intellectually, but to actually experience it, it's very different. It's kind of funny that I, you know, because I still feel so new at this and and um and and it's amazing that um i have people coming up to me for advice where i'm like i geez like i just uh you know call me next week come in barely figured this out um to to me that's exciting because it it 
tell it shows me that people are starting people in the music industry are starting to think entrepreneurially Mm -hmm. so i i totally encourage it like i think this is the time to be entrepreneurial and that it's okay to not go for an orchestra job if that's not what you're into you know um because there's such a strong expectation if you play an orchestral instrument that success means playing in an orchestra um that there isn't room to think creatively um without feeling like you're not actually making it Mm. if that makes sense um so yeah i would say the more that classical musicians think outside of the box the better it is for yeah just like our music community in general so yeah Yeah, yeah, really fun. Yeah. For more on Natalie and Kinetic, including information about their upcoming concert season beginning October 14th, visit kineticensemble.org. Special music heard in this episode performed by Kinetic Ensemble. First, an excerpt from Benjamin Britten's Young Apollo, and second, from Giancarlo Latta's Borrowed Density, a work commissioned by Kinetic Ensemble in 2018. A special thanks goes out to our guest, Natalie Lynn, to our interviewers extraordinaire, Joe Rivers and Kevin Barden, and to everyone out there listening to and enjoying Season 3 of Spork in the Road podcast. This episode was written, produced, narrated, edited, and music by Scott Barden. For more information on Rivers Barden Architects, visit riversbarden.com.